Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of On My Mind. I'm Shelley Griffith, and I am delighted today to have a very dear friend to come and be with us and share a lot of very interesting information. It's Becky Green, a licensed clinical social worker, and welcome, Becky. Thank you. Thank you, Shelley. We're delighted to have you today, and as I do with most of the guests, if you will help us with discussing a little bit, certainly, of your background, start with your family history, where you grew up, and so forth. Okay, well, I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I am the youngest of four children. I'm the baby of my family. Uh, I was the surprise child, as my mother says. Uh, She was 44 years old when she found out she was pregnant with me, and going on 45 when she had me, but uh, she said, I was the best surprise she'd ever had, so that was good. (laughs) That is excellent. Now, in your uh, growing up, give us a little bit of background on your education, where you went to school, so forth. I went to public school in Chattanooga. My father was a public school principal. My mother was a teacher, and uh, I graduated from Brainerd High School in Chattanooga. Uh, We were United Methodist, and when George Knapp, who was the president of Tennessee Wesleyan College in 1979, came to speak at my church, I thought I was going to UT Knoxville, and my father said, I think you're going to go to Tennessee Wesleyan, and uh, he spoke with Dr. Knapp and arranged for a uh, a visit to Tennessee Wesley in the next week, and there I was, and, and landed in Athens and have been there ever since, here well, ever since. That's an interesting connection, because I, too, when I graduated from uh, East Ridge in Chattanooga, was enrolled at UT, and friends came and convinced me to go to Wesleyan all those years mm-hmm. uh, ago. Great, great place. Now, at Wesleyan, what were you studying? Well, several different things. Uh, I started off in education. I did a little stint in church vocations, and then I decided human services was the field that I wanted to be in, and just doing something helping people. I'd always thought I would be a teacher because everyone else in my family had become teachers, but they said, no, you don't want to do teaching. It's too hard, so I went into an easy field of social work, so... (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't consider that easy <laughs> at all. Thank you very much. Well, I know I'm not sure. Well, it it it's what it is, and it's yes. it's been a good good place for me. Now, tell us, Becky, how many years have you actually been doing social work, and share with the audience a little bit about becoming licensed in the social work field. Okay. Well, I started in 1985 at the Department of Human Services as an eligibility counselor. I moved on uh, in three and a half years. I went to work for Youth Affairs, which is now the uh, Department of Juvenile Services here in McMinn County. But I went to work uh, with one of your good friends, Larry Groves, in, uh, at Youth Affairs and worked there for four years. While I was at Youth Affairs, I realized I needed more training and working with people and working with family and helping people live better, cope better, parent better, grow up better. So I started 
at UT in 1989 working on a master's in social work. I graduated from there in 1993, and because of the, the school load, I had to quit youth affairs, but it certainly gave me a, a great, I loved working with juvenile services and gave me a great place to understand working with families, working with people. Um, the Department of Human Services was a lot of paperwork in determining food stamps and, and other benefits for people, and it was a good place to be, but from youth affairs and getting my master's degree, I started doing hospital social work here at Athens Regional and was there and became connected with an outpatient counseling service that Athens Regional had at the time and had uh, for many years, Daystar Counseling Center. I stayed, uh, I moved from hospital social work after a couple of years and did all counseling, and that's been since 1995. So for close to 30 years now, I have been working full-time as a counselor, licensed clinical social worker, uh, after you graduate from a master's program, you have to have so many hours, clinical hours, of talking with people, counseling with people in order to get your license. And you have to take an exam, of course. So I've been doing that for almost 30 years now here in 2023. It's hard to believe. Yeah, it's a good long time. And, and having known Becky all these years, just marvelous work that she has done with so so many people including quite a number of my patients when i was still in practice now becky when you look at kind of let's go to the spectrum of of, of illnesses or uh, may not be illnesses at this point that you see uh when people come in to see you as a counselor uh, do we have Maybe some percentages like X percent of folks with anxiety or things like that, or is it necessarily broken down that way? I always call uh, anxiety and depression like siblings. They are so closely connected. I probably see more people present with depressive symptoms, but when people are in acute anxiety, they also will present in my office. But again, there's so many of the same symptoms with anxiety and depression. Well, will you see then, if, if that patient comes in, do you progress to uh, not just the single person counseling, but family as well? I mean, do you try to develop a relationship with some of their folks? I will if if needed, and we talk about that. Often people don't want to bring in other people from their family, and um, I, I see that as, as certainly their choice. Sometimes I say we really need to bring family members in, and they will, they will say, okay, fine then. But uh, absolutely, the the familial environment is so important for a person's mental health, as we all know. And do you do, uh, I guess, separate out into children's counseling as well, or is it pretty much adult? I, 
Unfortunately, there are so few counselors in Athens. I've had to limit my practice in the last five years. I no longer see teenagers, and I never was a child specialist. I I left that to to people who were smarter than me because I think you have to be so bright to work with a child. I was accustomed to working with teenagers from my work with juvenile services and always enjoyed that, but I, I no longer work with teens and children. I mostly work with adults, and hopefully that helps, that trickles down and helps the children and teens. But at this point, I'm only seeing adults. If you break it down, Becky, uh, are more of your patients female or male or about even? I would definitely say females present in my office much more than males, although I do have a few males that come in. Um, They're always quite surprised because they don't know what they're going to say, and then they end (laughs) up talking the whole session, which is great. That's exactly what they need to do. Exactly. Well, and as we've said before on certain medical things, and you're well aware, sometimes we males feel macho. We don't need help of any kind, whether it's physical or emotional, and that's that's kind of tough, I agree. Uh, are you seeing an increase in uh, requests for visits? And then we're going to segue in a minute into the true picture of mental illness uh, in in our area and in America. Are you seeing an increase in these problems of anxiety and so forth? I think that anxiety has really uh, exploded, so to speak, since COVID. I think people are much more fearful of their physical health uh, after COVID and, and certainly uh, social unrest that we've had and, and things changing. Uh, I talk to a lot of people who say things are so bad right now. How do we live through this time? And I say, well, I think things, this is a particular moment of time that we're in, but it's not any worse than some other particular times we've been in. The thing about now is we know everything going on. We can turn on news. I remember in about in the late 70s when CNN became 24 hours and we could watch news. Uh, in, in 1991 with the first Gulf War, with the Gulf War, you could watch live yeah. combat on TV. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable. We've never been able to do that. When the towers came down in New York City, people watched that over and over and over again. There was secondary post-traumatic stress disorder Mm -hmm. that people developed Mm -hmm. after that. I I know I've told you this, but I, I had some older people in my life, including my mother, who just watched that over and over. And I said, You've got to not watch it anymore. It's so devastating, and 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 we're taking that in. It's anxiety provoking, of course. But again, I, I I say all that to go back to. I don't think it's any worse now. We just know everything going on in the entire world, and we didn't do that even fifty years ago. Well, and that's a great point. And then when you tack on 
quote-unquote social media. You know, everybody has something to say. They don't necessarily get called out. Some do. I see arguments occasionally, you know. Uh, But you're right. It's 24-7, and you're, you're correct. I would advise my patients many times, please do not focus on the late evening news. It's 11 o'clock. Why don't you just have a, a little snack and, and read a nice book or, uh, you know, a passage in the Bible and go to bed. Go to bed. <laughs> and just right. please go to bed. And it was just, oh, goodness, you're right. So as we see, and a great point, Becky, the, the social unrest, whether or not we get engaged with the political scenario, the social unrest around us, even in our small community. Uh, is, is provo- you know provoking or promoting the, these issues? Uh, do you? Let me ask you this: Do you feel that, uh, from the standpoint of approaching uh, the anxiety, the depression, that uh, it may be a crazy question, that the counseling should wind up helping more than medication sometimes, or a combination when they see a physician? Uh, well, what do you think about that? Well, it, it depends on on the person and what's going on. The research shows that medication from a primary care person, in addition to counseling, is the best way for things to get better, whether it's anxiety or depression. But sometimes people are very resistant uh, to one or the other. Of course, I, when I see them, they're they might be more resistant to medication therapy. And sometimes just, uh, I tell people, I said, you come into my office, you you just unpack whatever you want to, and then we'll, we'll figure out how to pack it back up so that you can carry it easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm certainly hopeful that that... Uh, is helpful, and I ask people, "Is this helpful?" It, that's one of the, the uh, one of the things you have to do. Is, is this really helping you? You don't need to come back if it's not. So uh, both are optimal, but certainly uh, depends on the person. Well, and and you're right. Sort of like us prescribing a medication. If the patient doesn't follow through and be compliant, then yes. Uh, I don't see a reason to come back at that. Uh, so, yeah, that's a very, very important statement. And as you uh, do the counseling sessions, do you provide, let's say, homework assignments for absolutely, them? Absolutely. Um, things like uh, a gratitude journal. Uh, I've heard about gratitude journals for 30 years. People have probably seen Facebook challenges about every night, just get a notebook or something mm-hmm. and write down three to five things for which you're grateful mm-hmm. every night before you go to bed. So I did a recent webinar from home and uh, the, the presenter, Dr. William Sieber from Southern California, said the research shows, and we're able to now do PET scans on people's brains, which show activity in the brain. And I'm not sure how they did this applying mm. the gratitude journal, but he said that neuroscience shows 
that gratitude journals work. And you can't just do it a few times. It's the cumulative effect of going to bed every night and setting that tone. These are the things that I have going in my life that are so good. Mm -hmm. And I tell people, I said, if it's a bad day, um, it may come down to three things. Do you have a roof over your head? Do you have food to eat? Do you have running water? (laughs) I mean, how often do we take that for granted? I mean, you could put those down every single night. But again, that, that having something positive when you go to bed is so important. Setting the stage, so to speak, for sleep. Mm-hmm. No, that's fascinating. I, and I wasn't even aware they're studying that. Are you seeing patients who come to you and associate the sleep disorders, whether it's sleep apnea, insomnia, or whatever, are you seeing that connectability? Do they complain of that to you sometimes? They'll say, Becky, I'm not sleeping and I'm anxious. How are you going to help me? Sometimes they connect it, uh, that mind-body connection, so to speak. Sleep is one of the things I always ask people about because it's such a good indicator of someone's mental health. Sleep is certainly affected in anxiety disorders. It's affected in mood, uh, or it's, uh, yeah, affected in mood disorders of any kind. Um, I have a few patients, clients who are bipolar. Most of the clients I have probably are depressed. I, I, I don't have any percentages on that. But sleep, um, people either can't sleep or want to sleep all the time and and regardless of how much they sleep they're not getting quality sleep exactly i saw a stat this week that slides into that 70 million americans that's of what fifth of the population and not just we elderly are having sleep dysfunction or disorder and when you think about that it's phenomenal and they were highlighting the medications that you're well familiar with, you know, to help people sleep. But once again, even taking those is not addressing what you're describing, which is so important. How to, I love that about the, the, the journal itself. Let's talk about what makes us feel good. I personally get up in the morning, and, and I've said this to just hundreds of people, I'm so grateful when I can see my ugly mug in the mirror and say, thank you, God, that you got me through another night make me productive today, something that I can do right. Now, as you look at at kind of the future a little bit of your profession, are you getting less people entering the the clinical social work, do you think, in schools? I think more people are wanting to be counselors. Oh, okay. Yeah, I do see that. I see, and... And I see people, which I discourage this. I came out of school, and uh, it was about five years, six years before I went into graduate school. So many young people are going straight through their bachelor's and then getting their master's, which is is 
admirable, but this is a tough field. <laughs> and it's like teaching. You see so many uh, young people going straight through getting their master's, and then they realize, oh, this is yeah. really a difficult thing to do. Do I really yeah. want to do this? But I've invested all this school time and money. That's a great comment, Becky, because I was talking to one of the principals recently, and it shocked me, and I've said it on another program, that currently, in Tennessee anyway, <laughs> that the average tenure of the teachers that are going straight through, like you talk about, no other life experiences, is approximately 10 years. So by 30, 32, they're bailing out. They're going out of it. And so if you're seeing more people want to do it, but what I'm gathering from what you're saying is it really helps to have some life experience and then segue into the counseling area like you did. Makes more sense. I mean, uh, am I correct? That's oh, I think so. When I, I, I'm 61 now. When I was 31, I, I thought, who in the heck do I think I am telling somebody <laughs> in their 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s how to live? Yeah. And, and I was honest about that. And that was, that was something that, that we talked about in, in session. Yeah. And and what is this life about? What is coping about? So I can I can tell you things that I know from the research that work. But you have more life experience than me. Oh, I felt the same way yeah. back here as a, as a young puppy, you know, coming out into medicine so young, twenty seven, whatever it was, and even with postgraduate training, it still was very interesting when you approach your first clinical patient, you know. That, that's been there a long time. So that's a great statement. They can tell you more than you know. Oh, you better believe it. And many of mine did. You know? <laughs> so it was okay. And I learned to, to live with that. But uh, now take us a little bit, uh, if you don't mind, into, uh, I guess, this uh, the major problem of mental illness as we see it in America. And and I'll tell you folks very briefly, and Becky knows this, she's helped with this facility uh, called Grace House in, in Athens, Tennessee, a, a halfway house, quote-unquote, homeless shelter for addicted males. And since I've been retired, I've spent about seven years with this total new development for me and my training, and, and Becky certainly sees that. But we're seeing, as I gather, an escalation of mental illness uh, here and in America, are we not? Right. Right. Well, we, it may have always been there, but right. it's being reported more. Yeah. Good point. People are coming out and talking about things more. We're, pa- we're paying a lot for psych- psychotropic drugs. We're mm. paying a lot for illegal drugs. Yep. And, and, and some of these drugs are used to cope and... So that behavioral, mental aspect is certainly very relevant. And I find, Becky, in in my experience, certainly at the Grace House, that a lot of the services are are limited because the the folks in psychiatry and all are overwhelmed with what you're saying, Mm -hmm. and certainly the illegal market. Uh, And every time, tragically, we have these mass shootings, and very sadly, folks, even though you may not be in our area, we've had them close by recently, uh, 
and and mental illness pops up immediately. You know, that person was mentally ill. It wasn't necessarily the debate about firearms, which will be another episode later. Uh, but yeah, and and how we address that. Uh, what's your feeling sometimes about things that we can do to address a, a larger, you know, picture? I guess. How much time do we have, Charlotte? <laughs> All the time you need. All the time you need. Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, you know that's that's one of the things I recognize in working at Youth Affairs uh, many years ago is that these young people were growing up in in highly dysfunctional families. Uh, supposedly, we all grow up with some dysfunction, but there is there there certainly is a spectrum of that. And uh, people don't learn healthy coping skills. People don't learn how to deal with emotions in a normal, helpful, healthy way. And so uh, the knee-jerk reaction to grab a gun is is not new in our country. It's just certainly we're hearing more about these tragedies more and more because we know everything now. Great point, Becky, because I just remember growing up, it was really easy to solve a lot of these things uh, as peers growing up with a simple fist fight, teachers broke it up, we were done, and you could become friends. And you start looking at that, and then you evolve over decades, and you're absolutely right. It's just easier for me to go get a weapon and solve a problem than it is to sit down and cope. And that's another good point. Coping skills. What what do you look at when you counsel your folks? Or And as we say, we'll... We'll get you on another episode later about the massive picture of, of mental illness. But in coping with some of these situations they face, what are some of the primary things you like to tell your patients how I want you to cope with some of these things, anxiety, depressions? Well, I think having the foundation of, of good physical health, taking care of yourself physically, um, so often I will ask people, and it seems like, particularly when I ask women, I'll say, how do you take care of yourself? And they'll look at me and say, what do you mean, take care of myself? And, and I say, I mean, what do you do routinely just as your foundation? You know, how much sleep do you get? Do you eat enough protein? Do you eat healthfully? Um, do you grab a candy bar at lunch or do you have, you know, I say peanut butter sandwiches are really easy <laughs> and fairly healthy if you get good peanut butter and, and decent bread. Uh, you can do a lot better than that. But I do really focus on on how people take care of themselves physically. That uh, I, I spoke with someone this morning who says they just really they work in a in a profession where their hours are sometimes odd and they've been able to get get in a better sleep pattern over the last two weeks and they said they've just been able to cope better with things and I said 
Yeah, your brain's clear because you're getting, you're taking better care of yourself physically and and certainly coping skills uh, grow from that. Uh, I, I keep harping on sleep, but, uh, you know, traditionally uh, seven to nine hours of sleep is seen as what the normal average human being needs. If you're at the beginning of life, you need a whole lot more than that. If you're toward actually 60 and above, if you get six and a half to seven hours of sleep, that's great. I mean, that's that's optimal. You don't need that nine hours, although I know there are people who need more. But um, just, uh, I forgot where I was going with this. Okay. <laughs> but uh, getting... Getting that sleep, uh, I know what I was going to say with families. I remember years ago uh, talking with uh, an eight-year-old and bringing her mother in. Um, it was just her mother. Her father was responsible for this, too, but he wasn't there. But I said, how much sleep do you think your daughter needs? And she said, oh, about eight hours. And I said, you need to Google this. I said, your child probably needs 10 or 11 hours of sleep. Don't quote me on that, but I, I, if you'll Google sleep requirements according to age, you'll, you'll find that. Uh, children growing up sleep deprived don't function as well as children who get enough sleep. And you see that with, uh, I'm, I know teachers see it. Uh, they know which children have good sleep routines. But anyway, what I do, I look at the basics. What are people doing? And then from there, if they say, oh, I get good sleep, I, I, I meditate, I, I drink enough water, I do all these things, then we'll look at, okay, so what are some of the thought patterns you have? And, and how can we look at, look at those? Um, one of my favorite sayings that I learned in the past year or so uh, is from a meditation teacher, Jack Cornfield, and, and he may be quoting someone else who said this, but our brains, everybody's brains, human brains, are, are attracted to negative thinking like Velcro and positive thinking like Teflon. Oh my. So our brains just, the, the negative stuff sticks and yeah. the positive stuff, the positive stuff slips off. And, wow. and that's a, a survival so technique. Nice. If you know what's negative in your environment, you're more likely to survive. Yes. Well, and the other things, uh, as you're pointing out, good feeding, especially for kids in school. And the other big thing that you've done most of your life, I've done, is the exercise routine that kicks some of those good endorphins out there that give us that lift emotionally we need. And and you and I'd be preaching to the same choir because we yeah. both do a lot of that. But I'm I saw so many people who never ever got up out of the chair. They go to work eight hours, sit down job, get up, stand a little bit, go eat lunch, come back, uh, and then. Even if they were in a job of assembly work or whatever, they'd still come home. And they were tired, and in fairness to them, I understand. But and just 
15, 20, 30 minutes walk. You, you don't have to set speed records. Just go walk somewhere uh, or whatever. Yeah. So, and the bad thing is when they're sitting, what do they have on? Who knows? <laughs> That's right. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and now, now you're back. It's it's that grand old song, Becky, that you and I know. Will the circle be unbroken? It just Please. never stops. Uh, yeah. Nothing changes if nothing changes. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. One of the things <laughs> at the beginning of the day and the end of the day, I I encourage people don't don't be looking at any devices. Don't look at uh, don't look at your cell phone. The first minute you get up don't turn the tv on the the minute you get up give yourself space to breathe yep and then share with me i love that share with our folks you just taught me this today i love it you're saying in four seven eight breathe you got i got it you got it all right folks pay attention seven eight breath Dr. Andrew Weil out of Arizona has, uh, has promoted this uh, technique, but I don't think it was his originally. But basically, it's you breathe in to the count of four, you hold your breath for the count of seven, and you exhale for the count of eight. You do that four times. And it takes probably less than or around two minutes. And if you do that twice a day, that's been shown to lower blood pressure. The cumulative effect of doing that regularly has been found to lower blood pressure. In the webinar I did this past week, you can, if you don't have two minutes, if you want to calm yourself down, and I tell people this in my office all the time, I said there there are two really fast ways, and one of them I just learned again this past weekend, but the first one I know is put your hand gently on your chest or on your stomach area. That automatically calms you down. Um, physiologically speaking, it triggers the autonomic nervous system, mm-hmm. the one we're not aware of so keenly, and it just helps us calm down. That's so, so that hand on ch- chest, heart, don't grip your chest or people will think you're having a heart attack. Yeah. So, and, and it's hard to do that if you're driving too, but uh, anyway, if you can, hand on chest or hand on the stomach. But the second immediate way to calm yourself down is to make sure your out breath is longer than the in breath. Yeah. So that four, seven, eight um, automatically does that. But you can do it as simply as breathing in to the count of two mm-hmm. and out to the count of three. Yeah. Well, I'm a numbers nerd at times, and you're absolutely right. If you do what you said, four in, hold seven, out eight, four times a day, folks, that's a total, if I'm counting it right, roughly 19 seconds times four, 76 seconds. Goodness gracious. What a great way to slow things down. I love the thing about the hand and doing that to just say, 
Oh, yeah. Settle down. But, uh, yeah, and those those techniques are not hard, folks. You don't need equipment. <laughs> you just, do, not need just equipment. do it. And, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah it's and, amazing. And there's a whole other realm of, of study here. Is it, And people say, do I breathe through my mouth? Do I breathe through my nose? Yeah. Um, there's a whole lot of research out there about mouth versus mouth breathing versus nose breathing. There was a great book that came out about two or three years ago called Breathe. But <laughs> absolutely, if you can breathe through your nose, it's better. Now, in the four, seven, eight breath, you can exhale yeah. through your mouth. But that's, um, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, it takes me back to the saying that. Coach Pat Summit used that I follow every day, gave it to somebody yesterday, and her comments to her players who complained about her workouts, which were just so strict, quite successful, as, as all you fans know, she would say to her players at the end of a hard practice, right foot, left foot, breathe, yeah. repeat. And, and so they, they would look at her kind of crazy, and then she'd just say it again, and then she'd Dismiss them, and that's all she's saying. You'll get through this, and so the breathing techniques. Uh, but I do want you to come back uh, at another point, and we will. We, we need to go into depth about about some of these other issues, and 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 kind of how the country is looking at different things uh, with with these challenges. Is there something Becky you'd like to wrap up with today to say to the audience about about anything in general? The 478 breath and the gratitude journal, both of those are going to take five to six minutes to do. Add that. Just see what happens if you add those things to your life. The only other thing, and I I will preach on this, and this is what I do for myself, is uh, separating yourself from the stressor. Whatever that stressor is, and, and sometimes we can only do it briefly, but it's very important in calming down, mm. taking care of your anxiety, which directly affects mood, um, depression, sadness, that kind of thing. So, um, well, again, like gratitude, four, seven, eight breath, and getting away, if just for a few moments from whatever's stressing you out, will just help calm you down. Excellent. It's better for the world. Oh, absolutely. Folks, I hope you'll take Becky's advice. It's excellent advice, and you'll you'll feel much better about that. And as I say to, to you all every time, if there are questions, comments, please send them to me, shellgriff at gmail.com, S-H-E-L-G-R-I-F at gmail.com. I can get back with Becky, get you answers to questions. Uh, greatly appreciate you all listening today. And as I always say, I hope you have a safe and healthy day. And I'll see you a little further up the road.